Captain's Log, Stardate 8031 in the 23rd century. As commanding officer of the USS Enterprise, I look back on our most recent adventure and realize I could not have asked for a more dependable ship or dedicated crew. Cheko, Dr. McCoy, Uhura, Scotty, Sulu, and our late comrade Spock, whose heroic sacrifice during our last mission is now deeply felt. Our ship and our lives had been endangered by an experimental project called Genesis, designed to bring new life to barren moons. We sent Spock's body there to rest in peace. Why did you leave him on Genesis? Spock trusted you, and you denied him his future. My son of future? Only his body was in death, Kirk. Bring him to us, and bring that which he gave you, his living spirit. But there's even a chance that Spock has an eternal soul. Then it's my responsibility. Give me back the Enterprise. Out of the question, my friend. The word, sir? The word? Is no. I am therefore going anyway. Sir, someone is stealing the Enterprise. Off station, yellow alert. Commander Starfleet on emergency channel. He orders you to surrender this vessel. No reply, Jacob. One minute to space doors. Kirk, you do this, you'll never sit in the captain's chair again. Warp speed. Warp speed. Best speed to Genesis. Unfortunately, we were not the first to arrive. Think on Berta Fraser. She's arming torpedoes. Your presence here is an act of war. Fuck! Quickly overpowered, we had no choice but to allow the Klingons aboard, which meant the only way to defeat them was to destroy the Enterprise. The ship appears to be deserted. We're hiding! Leaving our ship for the last time, we fled to Genesis. Five. Get out! Get out! What have I done? What you had to do. Just as the planet began to self-destruct, we found Spock, and he was alive. His body had been regenerated, but his mind was a blank. Escaping Genesis, we used the captured Klingon vessel to transport us to Vulcan, where a mysterious ceremony was performed by Spock's people in an attempt to restore his memory. You came back for me. You would have done the same for me? Why would you do this? Because the needs of the one outweighed the needs of the many. Meanwhile, back on Earth, the punishment for our disobedience awaited us. I'm William Shatner, and uh, I'm so pleased to be watching this film with the director and uh, my dear friend, Leonard. And I'm Leonard Nimoy, and it's a great pleasure to be here with Bill to talk about it, to go over wonderful old and fond memories. Yeah. 
Yeah, the idea uh, going in was to do a, an adventure film that was fun. We had just finished a couple of movies where a lot of people died, and was, there was a lot of operatic drama. Uh, Captain Kirk's son died. Uh, Spock died. Um, there was a lot of pain and suffering, and we decided it was time to, uh, to lighten up and try to have some fun and inject some humor go for a straightforward adventure without a heavy. There was going to be no heavy in this movie, no bad person that we had to deal with. We did a lot of episodes in which there was no bad person. There were, there were circumstances. There was uh, unpredictable or unacknowledged situations that were coming up, that, uh, that social issues, um, issues that had to do with, with uh, uh, ecology, uh, population, uh, racial issues, concerns about situations that would come up where there wasn't necessarily any, any a, a perpetrator, a, a heavy who was causing the problem. I remember Leonard and Harv Bennett coming to me at one point saying, uh, what did I think about a time travel movie? I think that was the first inclination, uh, inkling I had of, uh, of what was uh, coming up. And I never abided uh, time travel. I always had a thing about time travel. It was too easy to solve uh, things by time travel. You could get out of the Deus Ex Machina by saying, oh, well, we've corrected that. And it's like the alarm clock ringing uh, in some of those cheap stories where the alarm clock rings and the hero wakes up, it's all been a bad dream. Uh, and I've always felt that's the possibility in time travel. And so I said to Leonard and to Harv that I didn't think time travel was a good idea and was quite uh, fervent in my opinion. Luckily, they paid no attention to me whatsoever. And We actually said that to each other. Let's not pay them any attention whatsoever. Uh, I, and then and add the word again. <clears throat> yeah. Let's not pay any attention to him again. Yeah, why should we? You know, exactly. Who and, cares? And, and and to their <laughs> and to their wisdom and uh, sagacity, bravery, courage, and foolhardiness. <laughs> they they went ahead with the time uh, travel, and and it was perfect. Yeah, Bill says don't do it. You just do it. That's all. You know? Knowing that if I say don't do it, it's perfect. If they do it, then then it must be right to do it. I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to say don't do it so that we'll think we should do it when we really shouldn't do it. <laughs> but knowing that you will do it, if I say don't do it, right. then if I say you should do it, they don't do it, but then I say don't do it and they will do it. That's right. There was a, a, a well-known, a well-received uh, time travel story called uh, on the uh, river on the edge, edge city on the edge of forever the city on the edge of forever which was uh, a good show that we did was i guess the best time travel show that we did and that worked but i just felt that uh, it's not a, a good story storytelling device for me uh, and as i say in this movie it works perfectly to fully understand yeah. the events in whichever hold the image it is necessary to you Behold the quintessential devil in these matters, James T. Kirk, renegade. Here's an example of what the movies uh, could afford to do that you couldn't afford to do on the uh, on, uh, on the television show. 
Yeah, there's this footage here, the, um, the Federation gathering, sort of our version of the United Nations. This was fun because we got to <clears throat> have a lot of people experiment with different kinds of makeups and costumes and so forth, people from various kinds of aliens, people from different planets, gathering to talk to, to be this Federation. The annihilation of the Klingon people! We demand the extradition of Kirk! We demand justice! This was a great introduction for Bill to have him up there on the screen and, and the Klingon talking about him. It wasn't big enough. I, I thought you could have yeah, made a the bigger, screen yeah, bigger. Yeah, we should have had a little, been a little closer on your eyes, actually. Genesis was perfect Get those gigantic eyes going. Light, not death. The Klingon shed the first blood while attempting to possess its secrets. Vulcans are well known as the intellectual puppets of this Federation. Your vessel did destroy USS Grissom. Your men did kill Kirk's son. Do you deny these events? We deny nothing. We have Mark Leonard? He was my daddy. He was a good, solid guy. I, I never really, frankly, got to know him personally very well. But he was so wonderful in this role. He had the authority and the power to play Spock's father, you know. And, 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 um, and the nose and the brow yeah. are somewhat similar. Yeah. Uh, so there's a facial resemblance, yeah. which was... Wonderful it's always very good. And Kirk goes unpunished. Admiral Kirk has been charged with nine violations of Star Robert Ellenstein, the president of the Federation, dignified, authoritative. Oh, this is John Shuck, very good as the Klingon ambassador. Wonderful actors. Yeah. Uh, who are uh, guys who've been in the business all their lives. Theatrically trained actors. Theatrically trained. Captain's log, star date 8390. We're in the third month of our Vulcan exile, and it was Dr. McCoy, with a fine sense of historical irony, who decided on a name for our capture. It didn't set out to be that way. When we made two, we never said we're going to make three films that, it's a that become a trilogy. In fact, uh, every time we made a film, uh, it was that, that was going to be the last one. Yeah. And they burned the sets, or they did something, sold the sets. They did something to destroy the sets so that two years later, when we'd come back, We'd have to rebuild Start the bridge scratch, set, for example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we were always being canceled. Consequences of their actions and the rescue of their comrade, Captain Spock. Thank you all. Repair stations, please. This is on the back lot at Paramount. <clears throat> we we searched high and low for a location for this sequence, for this particular sequence here, with with uh, Bill talking to the crew. Uh, to decide whether or not to go back to Earth and what to do with the ship and so forth. And we looked at various canyons. We looked at a desert, and and there were always problems. There was either the look wasn't right or it was too far out of town or whatever. And we ended up shooting it on the Paramount lot. And and the, uh, the set construction people and design people did a great job of camouflaging whatever we didn't want to see. They did it with smoke or a piece of a, a, piece of a set or a flat or some painted canvas or something to hide the background to hide the buildings that are, that are within 30 feet of us. Computer, resume testing. Who said logic is the cement of our civilization with which we ascend from Mikaeus using reason as our guide? T. Planahath, matron of Vulcan philosophy. Correct. What is the molecular formula of humanium sulfide crystals? White queen to section five, grid six, queen takes night, rook takes queen, white bond to section five, grid seven, pond takes... The look of the Vulcans? Everybody had a crack at it, you know, everybody tried a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and some of it worked and some of it didn't, but 
The, the whole idea was to keep them mysterious and... and uh, Monastic. And, and, and what? Monastic. Monastic, yeah, that's a good word. Say it again. Monastic. Good. I like that. Mm -hmm. Nothing unreal exists. Well, the idea of this scene was to show that he was back on his game uh, in, in on the left brain. All of the information was there. His ability to deal with scientific issues, his ability to his ability to multitask, was all there. But what was missing now we'll discover in a moment is any sense of his humanity. Here, how do you feel? Couldn't respond to that. Didn't know how to respond to it. Question doesn't make sense to him. What's the matter with you, Spock? For God's sake. Talk to mom. She'll help you out. The computer knows that. The question is irrelevant. Spock, the retraining of your mind has been in the Vulcan way, so you may not understand feelings. But as my son, you have them. They will in Star Trek Three. And here, um, Jane Wyatt playing Spock's mother. Yeah. <clears throat> there was an interesting irony here. Uh, Jane Wyatt was in Lost Horizon, um, a, a classic film directed by Frank, Frank Capra, in, I guess in the 30s or something. She was the young ingenue girl. And on the set this day, as second assistant director, I believe, was Frank Capra III. For goodness sake. Yeah. So he actually called action on one of the shots what's on one the of her of scenes, that, uh, which, which was spanning three generations. What's the name of that uh, term? where everybody's connected to the sixth uh, person. Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. Yeah. Logical decisions. They do indeed. Here he comes now. Well, we were looking for <clears throat> what would be lost in the 23rd century as a result of um, unconsciousness in the 20th century, nothing intentional, nobody just setting out to damage the planet, but just lack of consciousness. <clears throat> what would be lost in the 20th century that would, that would impact on the 23rd century in a, in a powerful negative way that would be, become a problem? It was sort of the sins of the fathers visiting upon the next generations. And we thought about all kinds of silly things like this, the snail darter bug or some little plant or something that was... For a long time I was hung up on the idea that it might be a plant that had to do with uh, developing some kind of medication. In the 23rd century suddenly there's a disease crops up and the plant that's the cure for it was died in the 20th century because it wasn't cared for, you know. Uh, it just seemed like a, s a small adventure to go 300 years through space to pick up a little plant. But when the idea of the whales came up it suddenly had a a size and a resonance and a mystery because of the sounds they make and so forth. And the idea of transporting 20 tons of whale in a, in a spaceship 300 years in time back to into the oceans had a, was, had a, had a theatricality about it. It was a stroke of great creativity. I had, um, several years before, uh, toured in a one-man show partially using uh, projection and sound and poetry on the whales. And I had become immersed in Greenpeace and saving the whale campaigns. So when Leonard uh, and company came up with the thought of the whale uh, and the whale coming back, it was, it, it captured me immediately. I remember when we were making two or three, I remember hearing you playing 
whale song in your, in your dressing room. Yeah. yeah, I had put together whale sounds and D.H. Lawrence's poem, Whales Weep Not, mm -hmm. as part of a one-man <clears throat> show. That I they say the sea is cold, but the sea contains the hottest blood of all. You got it. The That's whales. exactly yeah. it. Yeah. That's the opening line. Yeah. I choreographed the sounds of whales. The beep, boom, oh, oh. And I knew it like a piece of music. And then in between those sounds, they say the sea is cold. But the sea contains the hottest blood of all. Wall, wall, wall. That kind of thing. Guidance is functional. Onboard computer will interface with Federation memory bag. Weapon systems. Operational, Admiral. Cloaking device now available on all flight modes. I'm impressed. That's a lot of work for a short voyage. We are in an enemy vessel, sir. I do not wish to be shot down on the way to our own funeral. Good thinking. Engine room. Report, Mr. Scott. We're ready, sir. I've converted the dilithium sequencer into something a little less primitive. And, Admiral, I have replaced the Klingon food packs. They were giving me a sour stomach. Oh, is that what it was? Prepare for departure. Everybody not going to Earth had better get off. Savick. This is goodbye. Yes, Admiral. Thank you. Was that part of continuity, Leonard? I've forgotten. Sir, um, <clears throat> to have Savick exit? No, I can't honestly tell you that that was a conscious decision to get to get her out of the way or anything like that. Uh, it just seemed as though she'd be extraneous on this trip, and um, more interesting to leave her behind with the with the potential information that she was expecting Spock's child. Good day, Captain Spock. It came off of the idea in Star Trek Three that there had been a, this, the uh, the Vulcan Pond Far sequence when Spock is aging and goes through his adolescence and upon far for the first time, this Spock in heat, sort of, and, and Savick saw him through it. We never saw any actual, uh, anything like intercourse, but we did see the beginnings of a, of a mating ritual. So the idea was, did they or did they not consummate sexually their relationship, and was she now expecting Spock's child? And, and therefore the idea was to leave her with Spock's mother on the Vulcan planet with the idea that she may, might eventually give birth to Spock's child. You sure this is such a bright idea? What do you mean? I mean him. Back at his post like nothing happened. I don't know if you've got the whole picture or not, but he's not exactly working on all thrusters. <laughs> One of the best lines in the movie. I don't think he's operating on all thrusters, says <laughs> McCoy. <laughs> it's a pleasure to see DeForest yeah. now. Yeah. Looking well and and operating on all thrusters. Sulu, <laughs> take us home. This is on the back lot at Paramount. The people are standing on a, on a wooden platform. The rest of it is all created by uh, by special effects. The ship, the the, uh, the, uh, the scenery, everything. Engage reserve power. Aye, sir. Starfleet Command. This is Space Dock on Emergency Channel. We have lost all internal power.
the budgets were never uh, enough to get the great special effects that we see now. The, what we see now is perfected from things like this. There was a learning curve going on, as there still is, but, and the advances in CGI are enormous, as much as the advances in computers. Uh, what is it, every 18 months it doubles, uh, there's somebody's name attached to that, that uh, or is it three months? Anyway, within a space of time, the capacity for a computer doubles. Well, in the space of time, the ability to to make CGI effects doubles. It's, it, uh, it's a progression that's mind-boggling. Mm. Well, I just want to say, sure. Don Peterman shot this picture. He did a brilliant job. This is, this is a very subtle lighting in this, in this, uh, in this particular ship scene, and he did it beautifully. And uh, he, he had an Academy Award nomination for the photography on this picture. It was very good. I'm, I missed an opportunity here in character byplay that I'll never forgive myself for. This scene ends with with uh, McCoy saying to Spock, well, nobody's perfect, Spock. And Spock is kind of puzzled by that comment. And I should have said to him, oh, really? That's what you think. <laughs> I missed a big laugh. <laughs> but I was staying in character. <laughs> it would be impossible to discuss the subject without a common frame of reference. You're joking. A joke is a story with a humorous climax. Going back and forth from in front of the camera to behind the camera for me was very tough because I, I, when I do Spock, I need to get into that kind of mode of thinking and, and um, de-energize sort of and, and control and, and modulate vocally and intellectually and everything. And, and to get out in front of the camera and be energetic and say, do this, or be, I need this, or get over there, quick, hurry, blah, 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 blah. And, then, and then step in front of the camera and, and suddenly change into this other character was very tough for me. I didn't enjoy that. I don't think I did it as well as I might have. It takes away from your concentration in either, either one. It's a, for me, I'd rather be directing than, than acting, and so that the acting, at least, if the choice is between directing and acting in the film, I'd rather be directing. And, and therefore, the acting chore becomes onerous, and you're doing it either because, in, in this case, because we're the characters, there's nobody else to replace us, or in another type of film, we're doing it because we bring some celebrity to it, and it's part of the package. And it's, it's, uh, it's detracting from, from both. Mr. President, even with planetary reserves, we cannot survive without the sun. I'm well aware of that, Admiral. Ambassador Sarek, I'm afraid you're trapped here with us. There seems to be no way we can answer this. Problem. There's a very specific shot we'll come to later. There's a, a straight-ahead homage to Greenpeace. There's the the idea of the uh, the whaling ship firing at the uh, the whale, and the and um, Kirk putting the uh, Klingon ship in the way to block the harpoon came directly from the. Uh, the Greenpeace program, where they they would go out in their uh, the rubber rafts, Zodiacs. and 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 the zodiacs, yeah, and get around the the whales when the whaling ships would come. So the whaling ships couldn't fire at the whales for fear of hitting hitting the Greenpeace people. That was huge. That's the, those brave people from uh, generally from Canada, uh, which started Greenpeace, would literally put their bodies in the way of the Russian trawlers usually, and were uh, tremendously instrumental in bringing about a, a moratorium on the killing of whales. Yeah, they actually stopped some whaling ships. Our <clears throat> sources have failed. All Earth-orbiting starships are powerless. 
The probe is vaporizing our oceans. We cannot survive unless a way can be found to respond to the probe. Further communications may not be possible. This is a big turning point in the movie where we get this message from the President of the Federation, do not approach Earth. Do not approach Earth. Earth is endangered. And now, our hero has to figure out what to do here. How to deal with this sudden development. We thought we are on our way back to Earth simply to face trial and deal with uh, what was happened in the past. Now we have a whole new problem. Yes, sir. On speakers. Spock, what do you make of that? Most unusual. An unknown form of energy of great power and intelligence. Evidently unaware that its transmissions are destructive. I find it illogical that its intentions should be hostile. Really? You think this is its way of saying hi there to the people of the Earth? There are other forms of intelligence on Earth, Doctor. Only human arrogance would assume the message must... It took us a long time to get this idea working, the idea that the, uh, the whale song at first would be unrecognizable as such because it was intended to be played, to be heard underwater by the whales. So, um, to figure out how to get this sound translated, sort of, so that when Uhura is able to manipulate it electronically, to manipulate the sound electronically, to get it to sound like it would underwater, we begin to understand what it is, and that it is actually humpback whale sounds being transmitted into the ocean, being heard outside in the atmosphere. It doesn't sound like anything we recognize, but once we get it, once she manipulates it so that it sounds like it would underwater, we begin to understand what the mystery is all about here. I think I have it, sir. And this is what it would sound like underwater. Yes, sir. And the magic of the actual whale sounds are profound, too. Low frequency sound can carry, they think, maybe the 3,000 miles. Uh, and whale songs that are unique and, and they repeat them and uh, pods have their own so uh, sounds. And the mystique of the whale sound, and the whale language, is uh, part of the reality of what the whales are. We don't know whether, it's, whether they're mating, we don't know whether it's navigational uh, or territorial. And we're told that the, that the song that they sing, which can last anywhere from two to four minutes, for example, of clicks and moans and groans and so forth, will change. And that the song that they sing will travel from one pack to another. So that supposedly uh, uh, whales on other sides of the planet will be singing the same song simultaneously. And when it changes, they all change. Now, that's really miraculous. We don't know why they do it or how there they do it. There is such subtlety going on on the world around us from everything, from birds and insects to those whales, that to touch on that mystery in this movie is just magnificent. Does the species exist on any other planet? Negative. Humpbacks were indigenous to Earth, Earth of the past. Well, no choice. I must destroy the probe 
before it destroys Earth. To attempt to do so would be futile, Admiral. The probe could render us neutral easily. We can't just turn away. There must be an alternative. There is one possibility, but of course I cannot guarantee success. We could attempt to find some humpback whales. You just said there aren't any, except on Earth of the past. Yes, Dodger. That is exactly what I said. Well, in that case... Now wait just a damn Spock. minute. Well, Dee was uh, a wonderful, gentle man. He... He shunned away from confrontation and violence. And he was a lovely, lovely gentleman who was a gentleman. Uh, he was intelligent, he was subtle, he was thorough, he was a thoroughgoing professional. Uh, he loved performing, he was excited by it, frightened by it. Uh, he kept his private life totally to himself. Very private, very private. We were never invited to his home. My image was of he and Carolyn sitting on the back porch, drinking mint juleps and watching the grass grow. <laughs> but he watered the grass, so it must have grown with some rapidity. Yeah, right. <clears throat> he was great. Hold water. I suppose I could. You're planning to take a swim? Off to the deep end, Mr. Scott. We've got to find some humpbacks. Humpbacked people? Whales, Mr. Scott, whales. About 45 to 50 feet long, about 40 tons each. You're really going to try time travel in this rust bucket? We've done it before. Sure, slingshot around the sun, pick up enough speed, you're in time warp. If you don't, you're fried. Would you prefer to do nothing? I prefer a dose of common sense. You're proposing that we go backwards in time, find humpback whales, then bring them forward in time, drop them off, and hope to hell they tell this probe what to go do with itself. That's a general idea. Well, that's crazy. You got a better idea? Now's the time. But it's part of the... In progress, Part of the legacy and the feeling of sadness and enormity. I'm trying to find words to express what I'm feeling right now. In seeing somebody who's been dead some time and seeing them live on film mm. and knowing that that's going to be our legacy as well, that mm -hmm. people will look at us at as young as we were when we first made those films uh, and the series and the latter-day films. Vital, young, full of life, and we're in the earth, or in my case, spread in ashes uh, <laughs> in a burning car somewhere. But our life continues because it's on film. And as long as this film lasts, Somebody's going to look at that and say, who, what was that actor? Who is that person? Mm -hmm. All of us captured on film only to be forgotten when it decays at a much slower rate than our flesh and our bones. What's our target in time? Late 20th century. Can you be more specific? Not with this equipment. I've had to program some of the variables from memory. What are some of the variables? Availability of fuel components, mass of the vessel through a time continuum, and probable location of humpback whales, in this case, the Pacific Basin. You programmed all that from memory? I have. Angels and ministers of grace defend us. Hamlet, Act One, Scene Four. No doubt about your memory, Spock. Engage computers. Prepare for warp speed. We struggled with this whole idea. It was a very rich territory to get into, and we struggled with it in terms of, of uh, 
creative possibilities. I, I, frankly, I'm not convinced that we, that we mined all of the possibilities. Warp two. Warp three. Steady as she goes. Warp four. sequence works, I think, because the lighting grows in intensity as we approach the sun, and the, the heat, you can feel the heat building up, and you can feel the danger of approaching the sun and the possibility of burning. But when we get into the time travel, it was clear very quickly that the whole idea was to go inside Bill's head and, and go into a dream-like sequence made up of special effects which, which uh, uh, would last about a minute and uh, had enormous uh, potential cinematically, psychologically, we, I, I, we touched on it, but I don't, I don't think we managed to grasp all the, all the possibilities that were available to us. What's missing? A, a sense of, a, a sense of uh, really powerful um, insight into the, into the, the here, here we go here, going in, into his head and, and these dreamlike sequences. The ideas are all there. I just, I, I'm not sure that they're executed as well as they could have. If we'd had more time, we simply ran out of time. And, and money. money was a factor, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but look at the imagination between, with each one of these shots. Somebody is drawing, is presenting to Leonard the concepts behind what they think. Here's a sequence of time travel sequence. Well, what's a time, what does that mean? And so each one of these shots is sketched, presented, okayed, uh, authorized, and they go ahead and do it. And they sometimes they say, well, here's a suggestion. Somebody very, very imaginatively has put together a sequence, which is their idea of a time travel sequence. It's enormously imaginative. There were a number of very talented people involved. Everybody worked very hard. <clears throat> and maybe, it, maybe it's better than I think it is. I, I don't know. I've, I've sort of lost my objectivity on this scene. I know what we were after, and I, I think the story gets told but I'm not sure that uh, it had as much impact as it might have. Mr. Sulu? Mr. Sulu? Aye, sir. What is our condition? Sir, the braking thrusters have fired. Picture, please. In the original series, the three of us were, were together uh, almost constantly. So we got to know each other as, in a way that uh, we didn't get to know the other, uh, the other actors as well. Leonard and DeForest and I. They're all good, solid, professional people who came to work knowing their characters and knowing what their function was. And the chemistry, as you say, it, it worked. It, it didn't work because we knew each other personally. It worked because the, the scripts were right, the scenes were right, and the, and the actors... And their functions were right. Exactly. Yeah. Actors knew what they had to do. Homing in on the west coast of North America. That's the function of, of a series, the actors in a series, the leading actors in a series, along with the producer, are the only people who stay episode to episode. And the producers leave, too. They and the producers leave, as is, as is evidenced in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. So the, the constant uh, were the leading characters. And... 
So by the very nature of what they did, by being around, by the dint of them being around five days a week and all those hours, they they were given the the it was incumbent on them to protect what they did. The responsibility of maintaining the uh, the integrity of the characters really falls on the actor. Does generally the directors come in and out? Over writers certainly come and go. And, and over a period of seasons, the producers come and go. To say nothing about getting home. I can't believe we've come this far only to be stopped by this. There's no way of recrystallizing what I've been through. Sorry, sir. We can't even do that in the 23rd century. What I'm looking at is a relaxation that I'm glad to see. You can tell when an actor is uptight, mm -hmm. uh, and and that relaxation, that ease, although not um, recognized as such by an audience, yet an audience responds like watching an athlete who is comfortable. Comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. These photons could then be injected. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a sense of that. A lot of that. Uh, knowing that the story is rolling and, and the, the characters are in their proper position. It had a light tone to it, and, and it, it had, and what Bill is, is referring to, it, it, there was a comfort zone that we were in, knowing that we knew how to do this, and we weren't, we weren't pushing, we weren't stressing, we weren't forcing any issues. It was all kind of part of what we knew how to do well, and a sense that it would, it would, it would work. And Chekhov are assigned the uranium problem. Yes, sir. Dr. McCoy, you, Mr. Scott, and Commander Sulu will convert us a whale tank. Oh, joy. While Captain Spock and I attempt to trace these whale songs to their source. I'll have bearing and distance for you, sir. I want you all to be very careful. This is terra incognita. Many of their customs will doubtless take us by surprise. Here, here in the story, we begin to deal with, um, with the, uh, the issue of, of the our view of society coming back from the 23rd century to the 20th. And we have some, we have this wonderful tongue-in-cheek sort of irony of um, Bill being given the lines about uh, this is a, a primitive society, primitive paranoid society. <laughs> and uh, Spock is saying, uh, I recognize the, uh, the latter half of the 20th century by the, by the condition of the, the smog conditions in the air and so forth. So we begin to make comment on on uh, our current conditions here on this planet in a kind of a friendly, ironic point of view. We'll maintain radio silence except in emergencies. Those of you in uniform, remove your rank insignia. Any questions? All right. Let's do our job and get out of here. Our own world is waiting for us to save it, if we can. Commence landing procedure. Aye, sir. You two are fighting again. I thought you made up last night. Why are you two always fighting? I like the way she fights. Oh. Anyway, I said to her, if you think I'm going to spend $60 for a damn toaster oven, you're out of your mind. What'd she say to that? <laughs> this is Will Rogers Park, isn't it? Yeah. We were going to shoot this in, in, uh, in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, and there were very, very heavy rains shortly before production time. And they told us that the, um, the grounds would be too soft and the trucks would get stuck 
in mud in the park. So we found this place here in West Los Angeles in Will Rogers Park, very close to home. What the hell was that? No, and neither did you, so oh, shut up. I didn't see that. It's bearing to the whales? 283 degrees, 15.2 kilometers. Everybody remember where we parked. And this, of course, is San Francisco. We were out there in full force. There was no way to hide here. We had several cameras working and, and a lot of police activity. And, and getting that shot was tricky and time-consuming because if it didn't get it right, you had a, we had about 12 or 15 cars that were involved in the shot for us and had to be restationed re around the block and so forth and get ready again. It would take about a half hour to get ready again. And I was getting really nervous because we had a lot to do this day. And it took a lot of time to get that first shot going, but we managed. It's a miracle these people ever got out of the 20th century. Still you had to do some quick editing too, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, on on your feet. Yeah. Well, there, there were some scenes he he had to f uh, forfeit because there was a scene that was lost. A scene with um, with uh, George Takei as Sulu, who was supposed to come across a child on the streets of San Francisco, who he discovers is really his own great grandfather because of the time warp story, and we, we couldn't get to it. And there was difficulty with the child. The child was nervous and scared and crying, and suddenly the end of the day came around, and we had to lose it. This is a set. This is another day, yeah. This was but on the outside, yeah. he only had a certain number of hours of daylight. Sh of daylight to shoot in San Francisco. How much would you give me for them? Excuse me, weren't those a birthday present from Dr. McCoy? And they will be again. That's the beauty of it. How much? Well, they'd be worth more if the lenses were intact. I'll give you $100. Is that a lot? Hmm. All right, that's all there is. We talked endlessly about should these people change clothes when they get out on the streets of San Francisco? Should there be somebody in, on the ship who's sewing clothes for us to wear to, so that we can mingle with current society? And after a couple of, of uh, location scouting trips to San Francisco during the pre-production of the film, I, just, I saw people wearing such outlandish stuff. I said, just forget about it. We're going right on the street to where we are. I have the distance you know? and bearing, which were provided by Commander Uhura. If we juxtapose our coordinates, we should be able to find our destination which lies at 283.7 I think we'll find what we're looking for at the Station Institute in Sausalito. A pair of humpback whales named George and Gracie. How do you know this? Simple logic. What does it mean, exact change? Whoa. you mind telling me how we plan to convert this tank? Ordinarily, I could do it. This whole uh, set, the, the, uh, the painting of that wall, was a great idea that came from the production design department. It was originally written to be a billboard. 
that we'd be on our people and they would be looking around and you would pan up and see this billboard up, you know, up uh, above one of the buildings. And somebody said, let's just paint it on one of the buildings. It was a great idea visually. Yes, under U.S. government. Now we need directions. Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? This was great fun. I always wanted to, to get this scene of... of um, Chekhov on the streets of San Francisco with his Russian accent during the Cold War period, asking people, where are the nuclear vessels? <laughs> and the policeman was there as a, as a security person for us. So I, just, I brought him into the scene. I said to Chekhov, to, to Walter, go and ask the cop. And I said to the cop, just stare at him. <laughs> Don't respond. <laughs> I get a kick out of that. I think it's funny. This lady was part of a, a group of extras that we sent in to sort of react to these silly people asking where's the nuclear vessels and she came up with some line of dialogue she said oh i think it's across the bay in in um, sausalito or alameda and uh, we signed her to a contract and paid her who's this guy this guy was a musician kirk thatcher was came to me as an assistant on the movie he had worked at ilm so he knew special effects and he was to be my liaison uh, with ILM, and he turned out to be an extremely valuable asset on the picture. He, he wrote the, the music and recorded it that he's playing on that, on that box, and then he came to me one day and said, I'd like to play the role. And I said, okay. So he went down to, to the, uh, the shops on Melrose Avenue and bought this outfit, created this whole character for himself, <laughs> and uh, scene really worked. It, it came out of an actual experience that I had in New York one day when we were developing the movie and some guy came out of a doorway with this gigantic boombox on his shoulder, blasting, full blast, and invading the people's territory, literally on the sidewalks of New York for about two blocks. <laughs> I was really angry. I thought, who is this dumb idiot? Thinks he can, the arrogance of it, the, the aggressiveness of it. Mm. And I thought, if I, if I was Spock, I'd pinch his brains out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where the idea came from. You'll find it in all the literature of the period. For example, all the collected works of Jack and Suzanne, the novels are Harold Robbins. Ah, the Giants. Hey, that's showing of the wonderful world. Wait, in five minutes, Mr. Here I go. Catherine Hicks. She came in on an interview. Um, we were auditioning people. It came down to a choice between two actresses, and I brought them both to meet Bill. And um, Bill was out at his, at his uh, you were out at the stables in, in Burbank one mm. day, and I brought these two actresses out for lunch. I don't remember, I don't know if you remember. I vaguely, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, I, uh, the chemistry between he and Catherine was, was good immediately, and, and he suggested that we use her, and he was absolutely right. She was short. <laughs> She was perky and fun. She played Marilyn Monroe. She was a really good actress. Yeah. She is really a good actress. She, is, she yeah. has a wonderful face and a whole assouissance. A vitality. Yeah. 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 Charming. Look at the way she flirts with her eyes. Yeah. Perky. That is the limit of their hostility. Unfortunately, their principal enemy is far, far more aggressive. You mean man? Put it mildly. Since the dawn of time, men have harvested whales for a variety of purposes, most of which can be achieved synthetically at this point. 
One hundred years ago, using hand-thrown harpoons, man did plenty of damage. This footage we found, uh, it was shot and developed and, and produced in the days when, when uh, the whale hunters were really proud of what they were doing, and they show you the, uh, the uh, tremendous amount of, of uh, technical know-how that went into hunting and killing these creatures. You know showing you how adept they are at it, and they were very proud of it, and we managed to find this footage. And you think how outrageous it is to slaughter these yeah. incredibly intelligent, sensitive animals yeah. who, God knows, may be far superior to us. We, we just don't know. Yeah. They certainly are, as everything else is, our equal. Yeah. And to slaughter them, because to some people it tastes good. That's the word. These are slaughter ships. I'll introduce you to the Institute's pride and joy. And we're at the Monterey Aquarium, and this is a, a wonderful special effects shot. Uh, some of the buildings are actually there, but this, uh, this uh, pool in which we've got the humpback, supposedly, was, is a special effects shot created by, especially by uh, Industrial Light and Magic. These shots are shot on Paramount parking lot. They are, are construction design people duplicated these walls and this railing having taken pictures and measurements from the uh, Monterey Aquarium because we needed to create a tank in which we could uh, put these uh, mock-up sections of humpback whales and, and control their, the, their, their passages as they went by and they spray at us and so forth. So all of this was shot at, at, uh, at Paramount Studios and that's a, that's a mock-up section of humpback whale created by our special effects people. They're very close to, uh, to full size. We're just doing sections, so we didn't have to do the whole whale, but they're very close to full size. I would say maybe 75, 80% of full size. With the radio-controlled miniatures, we're treating with perspective. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But this, again, is at Monterey Aquarium. How soon? Soon. It's too, it's too bad, too, because they're really quite friendly, as you could see. I've grown quite attached to them. And now, here's a much better way to see George and Gracie. This is at Monterey. What you're hearing is recorded whale song. It is sung by the male. He'll sing anywhere from six to as long as 30. This call for some serious imaginative acting here on the part of Bill and Catherine and all the rest of these people, because they didn't see anything in this shot. They walked onto a soundstage at uh, George Lucas's studios. There's nothing there but a blue screen. There was no whale, there was no water, there was no glass. This is uh, actually at Monterey with the tanks behind them. But when we look at what they are looking at, they're looking at a brick wall. Bill's looking at a brick wall here behind the camera. He doesn't see this. This was put into, into the movie later. This was shot in a NASA training tank in El Segundo, California. He's looking at a brick wall here. He doesn't see any of this. This was shot several weeks later. A section of, of mock-up. That's, a, that's a, uh, an artificial head of a humpback whale created by the special effects people. Down in about 15 feet of water in this tank in El Segundo where they train uh, astronauts for weightlessness. Yeah, speak up, though. Attempting the hell to communicate. Communicate? Communicate what? You have no right to be here. You heard the lady. Admiral, 
If we were to assume that these whales are ours to do with as we please, we would be as guilty as those who caused their extinction. Okay. I don't know what this is all about, but I want you guys out of here right now, or I call the cops. I assure you that won't be necessary. We're only trying to help. The hell you were, Buster. Your friend was messing up my tanks and messing up my whales. They like you very much, but they are not the hell your whales. We went through a number of permutations with the screenplay. Um, we knew what we were after, but it wasn't easy to come by at first until finally, when the story got locked in tight enough and, and Nick Meyer came on board to do the middle section, this whole section where we're on the planet in the 20th century. And Harv Bennett wrote the first section where the picture opens up and leads up to our arrival on Earth. Then Nick wrote this section, and then Harv wrote the final section after we, after we finish on Earth, and, and it all fell into place. We were able to really get a grip on what this story should be. Exaggerate. Exaggerate. You've done it before. Can't you remember? The hell, I can't. What else did you learn from your mind meld? They're unhappy about the way their species have been... But this, this, this movie gave us a chance to really bring Star Trek home in a, in a very physical, geographical sense, to San Francisco, to, to the home of the Federation. And, and being in San Francisco was, was absolutely a, uh, a wonderful touch for us, to be able to touch base like that and put it all where it sort of all began. You know. There was a question. I don't remember the... Uh, uh, I think it was in the series, though. Was it in the series? I think so. I, don't, I really don't remember that, because what I, what I do remember about this movie was we were trying to, for some time, determine what city we should do this in. Well, the Federation was was in San Francisco. Was established in San yeah, Francisco? Yeah. Well, then it made sense for us to go there. Well. Yeah. In that case, I don't remember why there was even any question about whether we should go to San Francisco, mm. but it, it worked out well. Here without risking their lives, we can't let them go without taking the same chance. I know, I know. And besides, we're not talking about human beings here. It's never been proven their intelligence is oh, in any way. Oh, come on, Bob. I don't know about you, but my compassion for someone is not limited to my estimate of their intelligence. What a great shot. Wow, San Diego. I don't remember exactly which ship this was, but they allowed us to put the Enterprise name on it and to shoot on board it, and that was a, a, a great break for us. Admiral, we have found the nuclear vessel. It was a, a nuclear-powered carrier vessel. And to have it as a prop in this movie was a great touch. What's your plan? We will beam in tonight, collect the photons, and beam out. No one will ever know we were there. Understood and approved. Keep me informed. Kirk out. There she is, from the Institute. If we play our cards right, we may be able to find out when those whales are leaving. How will playing cards help? Well, if it isn't Robin Hood and Friar Tuck. Where you fellas heading? Back to San Francisco. Came all the way down here just to jump in and swim with the kiddies, huh? Very little point in my trying to explain. Well, yeah, I'll buy that. What about him? Him? He's harmless. Back in the 60s, he was part of the free speech movement at Berkeley. I think he did a little too much LDS. LDS? Mm. Come on, why don't you let me give you a lift? I have a notorious weakness for hard luck cases. That's why I work with whales. We don't want to be in any trouble. You've already well, that's that. what time travel gives you. It gives you that sense of people who are in the wrong place. And it creates that kind of potential for comedy and drama.
This is again at Monterey at the aquarium. Great place. It's another big great set for us. Time after time. Yeah. About Jack the Ripper. It was a good movie. Yeah. Well, they're quite different in that that was a, that was a chasing a villain through time. But there was a sense of, of uh, again, the fish out of water idea, people in the wrong, in the wrong era. Iowa. Oh, landlubber. Come on, what the hell were you guys really trying to do back there? It wasn't some kind of macho thing, was it? Because if that's all, I'll be real disappointed. I really hate that macho stuff. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> Go ahead. What's going to happen when you release the whales? They're going to have to take their chances. What does that mean exactly, take their chances? It means that they will be at risk from whale hunters the same as the rest of the humpbacks. What did you mean when you said all that stuff back at the Institute about extinction? I meant that... He meant what you said on the tour. That if things keep going the way they are, the humpbacks will disappear forever. Oh, that's not what he said, farm boy. Admiral, if we were to assume those whales are ours to do with as we pleased, we would be as guilty as those who caused, past tense, their extinction. I have a photographic memory. I see words. Are you sure it isn't time for a colorful metaphor? <sighs> You're not one of those guys from the military, are you, trying to teach whales to retrieve torpedoes or some dipshit stuff like that? No, ma'am, no dipshit. Well, good. That's one thing I would have let you off right here. Gracie is pregnant. We had fun doing some of this, the sequence, the improvisational quality. Mm. Oh, there's a great moment coming up here. Great, great moment. It was written that she says, you guys like Italian. And all that was written was, Bill says yes and I say no simultaneously. And we got that. And then Bill said, okay, now we got that. Let's play with it. And we got this whole wonderful thing coming up. It's great. I have a hunch that we'd all be a lot happier discussing this over dinner. What do you say? You guys like Italian? No. Yes. No. no. Yes. No. Yes. I love Italian. And so do you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally improvised. It was great. <laughs> uh, <and> so do you. <laughs> Professor Scott, I'm Dr. Nichols' plant manager. Where was this one? This is a, uh, a plexiglass factory in uh, Orange County, I believe, mm. somewhere in, in Southern California. I've tried to clear things up. For Found this place that, that makes this stuff, and it was a great set. Yeah, really. Yeah. The, the, the light quality is so interesting. Yeah. Again, Peterman lit it wonderfully. The first picture that I remember that he did, I think, was Splash. But he, he shot uh, several sizably um, successful films. He's very good. Professor Scott, just take it easy. Dr. Nichols has offered to take us around the plant personally. He has? Yes. With pleasure. Well, that's different. They know what the, the game is, you know. They know what the joke is, and they're in on it, and they, they know how to play it. Professor, may uh, my... They go right to the core of the scene. They know what the heart of the scene is supposed to be about, where, where, where the charm is, and play it. Carry yourself in the part. 
Hi. Hi. Good looking ship. Here we 204, isn't it? Right on. You fly? Oh, here and there. I flew something similar back in my academy days. All right. And this must be. This was a great thing to be able to bring this helicopter in between these buildings the way this guy flew this thing in and flew it out. Quite wonderful. We had a lot of. A lot of speculation about whether or not it was really possible to fly this gigantic piece of plexiglass hanging from the bottom of the helicopter. And the one key shot that we got, which you'll see later as, a, as the helicopter flies across the sky, uh, skyline of San Francisco, was done with a, with a radio-controlled miniature. Although we did get some footage of the, the helicopter actually carrying this gigantic piece of plexi when it was being lowered into the ship. Credible is the idea. So it should be believable, so it's not so outrageous that it's silly. I'll put it another way. How thick would a piece of your plexiglass need to be at 60 feet by 10 feet to withstand the pressure of 18,000 cubic feet of water? There was some, some reason to believe that it could be that way. But mostly it needs to have its own reality. Sure. It needs to follow its own reality. Uh, in other words, a spaceship itself landing in Will Rogers Park is obviously unreal. But since you accept that, now, if you accept that, what follows that reality? It's got to be visible, so it's got to be hidden. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. The whole idea of keeping it cloaked in San Francisco, keeping it cloaked on the ground, was a tremendous money saver, by the way. He didn't have to show the ship. It's cloaked. It's invisible. You know. <laughs> Hello, computer. Just use the keyboard. The keyboard. How quaint. I felt freer on this movie, much more relaxed making this movie. Three was very tense, very tense in every conceivable way. The studio had a tough grip on my neck. Every day it was a pass-fail day. They'd go look at the daily and let me know if I had been successful or not, you know. Why didn't you do this and why did you do that and can you do this on time and there was a lot of tension. A lot of tension. And fortunately, I was in the movie very, very little. So I was able to, uh, to focus on the directing. On this picture, they cut me loose a little bit. And I, I felt that I was having a lot more fun. The way the story unfolded in the search for Spock, there was bound to be very little of me. Uh, you had, had to have me only at the end of the movie. In this movie, it was quite different. You had to have me pretty much there much of the time. Not now, Madeline. What exactly did you have in mind? Well, a moment alone, please. You uh, realize, of course, if we give him the formula, we're altering the future. Why? How do we know he didn't invent the thing? change your mind? Is there something wrong with the one I have? Little joke. Bye, old friend. Wait a minute. How did you know Gracie's pregnant? Nobody knows that. Gracie does. I'll be right here. Yeah, we did something that I don't remember that we'd ever done before, which was a moving uh, beaming out. 
as as the person is walking. We'd never done that before, and I thought it might be interesting to try that. Do you trust me? Implicitly. This was a set built in San Francisco on a soundstage. The entire restaurant set was built. Great choice. This is a tightly written scene. Everything about it is on the page. But certain scenes call for improvisation. The scene that I described with Bill in the, in the, uh, in the cab of the truck, uh, improvising the yes, no, yes, no, yes, I love Italian and so do you, was, was wonderful for improvisation. Uh, the scene on the street where Chekhov is asking people about nuclear vessels was totally improvised. I said to he and Michelle, just keep, we're going to send you people, just keep asking them where the ships are. And I said to Walter, we need to hear you say nuclear vessels. Where are the nuclear vessels? That's the joke of the scene. And uh, the rest took care of itself. So in certain situations, it, it plays well to improvise. But in, in a scene like this, this is tightly scripted. But we'll tag them with radio transmitters on a special frequency so that we can keep tabs on them. Tricky scene. Getting to know you, getting to trust you, getting some information. Who are you? Who are you really? Well, I can't tell you. I'm from Idaho. I'm from outer space. <laughs> I only work. I'm not from outer space. I only work in outer space. San Francisco without a lift. You have such a low opinion of my abilities. How come we're here having dinner? Sucker for hard luck cases. Cheers. Besides, I want to know why you travel around with that ditzy guy. The passage of time is uh, a sore subject with me in that seeing yourself on film from very young to old and each film is a demarcation of some, of some uh, loss of some kind. It's hard to, uh, to look and not remember what was. So I'm looking at myself here and uh, there's been a passage of time since the movie was filmed. Uh, what else has gone, you know? And I remember I wanted to, um, as it's been said, it's, it was a subtle scene, and I wanted to do something here perhaps more improvisational, but I must be, I thought maybe I was too careful. Ultimately, I think I, I was too careful it. in this scene. What is it? I thought I told you. There is a line between improvisation and the necessity of saying the words that have been written and go through the the progressions of what needs to be done for the story. On top of that, there is an application of something else, some other reality. It's hard to put into words that the actor can bring. Sometimes at, at your best, it has an improvisational, it's almost, it's escaping out of you. And when you hit that, where it's almost a surprise to you, the actor, as it is to you, the audience, it's like uh, archery, where the ideal time to loose the arrow is when it surprises you, or the time to take a shot with a rifle is the, you're on the hair trigger, and the rifle suddenly is pressed by breath almost. And so these lines, so an actor should breathe the words out and they happen almost inadvertently. If you can achieve that, 
the inadvertency of the artistic inadvertency. You've gotten to the peak of what an actor does. Oh, I'm always looking for that. Just say so. I mean, why all the coy disguises? To relate it even more closely, it's like this conversation. It's like what I'm saying now. I'm not quite sure of what's coming out of my mouth. When I hear it, I know it's right or it needs correcting. What I really mean to say is. So when I hear it, I know it's either right or wrong, and that's the way it should be as an actor with his lines. Only the lines have been written, and so you know it's right. But it should have that, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I meant to say. Or it isn't. Are we leaving? Come on. I struggled with this scene. It's a long scene, a long dialogue scene, and therefore questionable. You know, could it be shortened? Or is it extraneous? Is, it, is there something about it that, that we could punch up in some way? And I think what I, what I was thinking probably was similar to what Bill was thinking is, are we missing something here? Is there some way to approach this scene to give it more of a sense of drama, a sense of electricity of some kind? It seems like a dangerous scene to me. I was worried about it. I thought, they're both charming. They're both doing exactly what's called for. They're both playing it intelligently and sincerely. And he has, of course, a secret in the scene. So does she. He wants her to reveal her secret. She's trying to, to explore his. They're both covering to a certain extent. He's hiding the fact that he really is. He's alluding to the fact that he's a spaceman, a space traveler but trying to do it in such a way so as not to totally alarm her and drive her away because she has information he needs. It's a tough scene. And, and at some point, I thought to myself, we've just got to trust that the story, the movie, needs this scene, needs these things to happen between these two people. As a director, that's, uh, that's a, a difficult choice in a motion picture by its very nature needs motion. And when you come to rest, uh, and I'm thinking of the other night, um, you dwell on a, a scene that is that are words and thoughts, and your hope is, both as the director and as the observer, that the audience will stay with it so that the action in the scene is the thought prog progression and not the camera moving and editing and music and all the magic that you can bring to bear. Will the words hold? And after you've seen it 10 times, 20 times, 100 times, you're thinking, I don't know whether the words are holding. And so you go to the, so, and then it's in the movie. And now it's permanently in the movie. And somebody comes along and says, you know, I would trim a little out of that, you know, yeah. out of that scene. Oh, that's my worst nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you might place that scene rather than a restaurant walking or mm -hmm. uh, uh, the bad guy chasing you or intercut something else happening in another scene that's ominous so that it lends a sense of import to the scene you're playing. Right. Uh, but if the plot is working and if the characters are working, that's frequently not necessary. But you just can't quite tell. But if he hadn't said, I love Italian and so do you, we never would have gone to that restaurant. We wouldn't have had this problem. <laughs> we could have gone someplace else. <laughs> You know, like, why don't we just take a walk on the Golden Gate Bridge? I think Bill and I, probably because of the, uh, the kind of pressures that we've worked under in television, love to get on the first take. Nothing, get, nothing wrong with getting on the first take. But you have we, to, you go some more for protection. You know. But we would prepare. Uh, the actors w would be rehearsed. I, Leonard uh, and I would rehearse at a table. Mm -hmm. We long ago in the series had a table set up 
with the actors sitting around it. And instead of coming to the set and then rehearsing on the set, we would get up to speed by sitting around the table, getting that dialogue, getting it directed to the director's satisfaction, the nuances of uh, how to read the line, uh, and everybody became familiar with what ad-libs, what uh, variations, what uh, any difficulties you had with words that you wanted to change that might be acceptable to be changed. All the rehearsal was done at the table, even to the point of marking it out on a floor and walking it while they were lighting, because mm -hmm. the lighting mm -hmm. takes can take hours, days. So the actors are brought to speed just before they're called onto the set. When they get on the set, they're ready to perform. Uh, once the camera uh, uh, has been rehearsed and the, the cinematographer feels comfortable with the lights, you can get it on the first take. But by that time, a lot of work has gone into it. Now, many directors don't do that for some reason. I've never understood why. Rehearsing on, on the set on the set, camera. Yeah. yeah. Without the camera, rehearse around the table. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, if it were really complicated, you might want to go some additional takes. But if you got it, you got it. Can you hear me? Confirmed. Roger that. Mardet commanding officer. This fellow was uh, actual Navy personnel. I think, if I remember correctly, he was at one time a Top Gun pilot. We have an intruder in number four MMR. Scotty, do you read? Yes. I can hardly hear you. My transporter power is down to minimal. I've got to bring in one at a time. Show you an economy move here. Nichelle, as Uhura, beams out from the from below decks on the carrier. And each of these beaming shots is expensive. So we have her You have a Klingon beaming. We don't have her yeah, yeah. But see she beams out here and the question was, how can we avoid spending the money to beam her out there and beam her in on the Klingon ship? So we put the camera in a position where you wouldn't see her. You would just hear her beam in the background. And then she appears, and your mind accepts the idea that she has just beamed aboard, or at least we hope the mind accepts that. Each CGI shot costs money. Yeah, many So thousands. you apportion. Right. The money you have, saving it on a beam-in, gives you a... budget was established going into the movie. The budget has to be approved by the studio before you start making the movie. And that budget would, would contain a certain number of special effects. You have a certain amount of leeway during the making of the film. You say, gee, I really, we really need this one additional shot. Well, okay, that's $20,000. Maybe we'll get an approval for that. Maybe you won't. And then maybe you can swap shots. You can say, you know, I've just discovered I don't need this shot that was budgeted here, but I do need it someplace else. I need a different shot, so let's use the money to swap over. But you're pretty tightly controlled by the budget, unless you're in a runaway situation where the studio says, well, okay, give them the money, let them make some, do some more shots. The know? problem with uh, the Star Trek films was they knew by this time uh, what the potential box office would be. Exactly. It was, and, and four broke it, uh, somewhat uh, it was the highest. It was the highest grossing, wasn't it? This one, yeah. Uh, but the other five earned almost all uh, the same money. There was a pattern. Established. Uh, only so many people came to see it, and they knew they would make a hundred million or say, 90, 80 million dollars. Therefore, the budget had to be X, whatever that was, so that they would guarantee themselves a profit. And therefore, you couldn't go over budget. There was no fantasy about the upside potential of the movie. 
where people say, God, this movie could do two. This would be a one. breakout movie. Yeah, By right. that time, we knew that's why they kept making them because they knew they would make in the area between eighty and a hundred million dollars, right. um, and therefore you, you they gave you a certain amount of money, and with that money, you were to make a film. Part of that money went to the actors' salaries above the line. So you knew that that was deducted, that was a given, There was a, that was certain. Now you had that much more. Here's a wonderful scene. Filled with uh, all kinds of uh, production quality based on the aircraft carrier and the people that Leonard was able to get. Man down! Get a corner over here! There was talk about going back to television during the 70s that I recall. In fact, there was, uh, there was scripts written, there were contracts put out with some of the actors for a, a two-hour television special to kick off the series again and start doing the series. And that was all discarded. I, I really don't remember exactly why, but when George, George Lucas, I've always said, was totally responsible for the rejuvenation of, of Star Trek in movie form because in 77, 1977, when Star Wars opened and had that tremendous popular acceptance, the studio decided that they would take the chance and make a Star Trek movie. And, and, and that was the beginning of this whole series of Star Trek films and eventually the, the Star Trek epi uh, uh, television series and so forth. So I think he really was the, uh, was the, uh, the spark that lit off this whole movement. Now here again is a special effects shot. That whole grotto is empty now. It's all designed by the special effects people. Night. We didn't want a mob scene with the press. It wouldn't have been good for them. Besides, we thought it would be easier on you this way. You sent them away without even letting me say goodbye to them? You son of a bitch! This was one good whack she gave him, and I don't think the actor was quite expecting it, or very happy about it for that matter. <laughs> but it was a good sport. He took it. This is a miniature. That, that uh, helicopter is about four feet long. And this is on the ground. And this is an actual shot of the uh, helicopter with the plexiglass arriving at uh, Will Rogers Park in West Los Angeles. Tricky business getting that thing up under the helicopter like that, but it worked out okay. get to the uh, the payoff of this whole idea of the invisible ship. Here's Scotty popping up out of the top of the ship. Special effects shot, obviously. The rest of the shot is real. The helicopter and the, and the plexiglass. Here she hits the wall. 
Why don't you do that? She just played it. She just bounced. That was really good. Yeah. And here she gets to do the pantomime business of feeling the ship. Glad you're here, but I must admit you picked a hell of a time to drop in. Oh, take it easy. We need your help, no? Is any of this real? Yes, it's real. Take a look. Storage tanks for your whales. We'll bring them up the Admiral, same way we brought you up. It's they're gone. Gone? They were taken last night. I wasn't told. They're in Alaska by now. Like, like I told you, I mean, you can go find them, right? Can't go anywhere. What kind of a spaceship is this? It's a spaceship with a missing man. Admiral, full power has been restored. Thank you, Mr. Spock. Hello, Doctor. Welcome aboard. Admiral, are you there? Yes, Uhura. What's wrong? I've located Chekhov, sir. They're taking him to emergency surgery right now. Where? Mercy Hospital. It's a pretty nice uniform here. I like this one. This is good, but some of that other stuff was not comfortable. This outfit that she's wearing was very heavy and very yeah. constricting. Jim. Michelle. No, Michelle, yeah. yeah. We've got to let me go in there. Don't leave him in the hands of 20th century medicine. Admiral. This was very comfortable. The day I, we got in a tank with that outfit on, boy, I suddenly realized how heavy it got when it took on water. I had to really tread water hard to stay afloat. The thing wanted to sink me. Will you help us? How? Well, we're going to have to look like physicians. This is a hospital in Los Angeles. We'll try down here. You check there. Funny moment here with D. Gives this lady a pill to grow a new kidney. Kidney dialysis. Dialysis. And there was a shot later that's improvised that, that was not in the script where we have her come rolling by in the wheelchair saying, the doctor gave me a pill and I grew a new kidney. Doctor gave me a pill, I grew a new kidney. <laughs> Here, I got it. Let's go. It's being held in the security corridor. One flight up. His condition is critical. Come on. Uh, excuse me. We'll take that. Dr. Diablo, Dr. Diablo. Oh, Emergency. So, there we have, yeah, I was there. I heard the whole thing. Weintraub says radical chemotherapy. She's going to I think the story was interesting, and, and the picture was fun. It had humor. It was fun. And Leonard did uh, such a wonderful job in directing it. It was uh, fluid, it was... and fun. And the script was so good. Yeah, it was an easy picture to enjoy, easy to understand, 
intriguing. And, um, you know, when this picture was finished and we had a couple of press screenings, I actually had some fellow was writing for one of the New York suburban newspapers said to me, this picture's not going to work. And I said, why? He said, there's too much humor. He said, the Star Trek audience is too serious for this. And I said, you are so wrong. You know? <laughs> they're, they're hungry for a few laughs. You know? He just didn't get it. And, and the humor really did work. What the hell is that? What are you doing? Towering of the metal meningeal artery. What's your degree in? Dentistry? Uh, there were a lot of people who were uh, illuminated by, uh, by the subject matter. We eventually took this film to Moscow, and the, uh, the, the Russians um, declared a moratorium on, on whale hunting for a while. And the World Wildlife Fund asked me to come to Moscow to show this picture to help celebrate that event. What a great time. The Russian reaction? Yeah. I can't honestly tell you. The audiences that we played to were essentially English-speaking audiences, although we did have, we did have Russian, um, Russian subtitles. Uh, there was one big laugh where at the end of the movie, um, the, the, the crew are speculating about what kind of ship they're going to be assigned to uh, after the, the courts-martial. And, um, and somebody says uh, the, the bureaucratic mentality is the only constant in the universe. They got a big, big laugh in Russia. Big laugh. <laughs> the bureaucratic mentality. Is it, was that a line that we had in the movie? It was in the script, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. shooting schedule was similar on all of these movies around the same time, around 40, 45 shooting days, something like that. There she is. Beautiful. <laughs> the doctor Under gave character. me a pill and I grew a new kidney. <laughs> Fully functional. It happened right behind that closed door. <laughs> This scene all makes sense and played very well. And what's on the director's mind? I'm worrying about where in the scene should I put the, the uh, steps of the, the ship going up behind the actors to show the ship closing up. You're worrying about the timing of that. You know? Did I miss it? I guess I missed it. It happened earlier in the scene. What are you talking about? I'm coming with you. There it is right yeah. there. And you know what, Leonard? Yeah. We would never have missed it. It becomes so important. Yeah. Something becomes so important I know, at the I time. Know. But you think, I've got to have this timed right. Yeah. I've got to get this yeah, up right. that. That little piece of set going up by right. the actress. You know. Could have done it with sound. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the things you get hung up on. Yeah. You, know. you think they're critical. Yeah. Scotty, beam me up. Jesus 
eyes. Spock, where the hell's the power you promised me? One damn minute, Admiral. I'm ready, Spock. Let's go find George and Gracie. So, I'm trying to remember how this thing worked. Got used to a Huey. You tricked me. You need me. Ready, sir. Take a seat. Now, Mr. Sue. This was uh, sort of an afterthought to create, to put these uh, runners in the shot. <clears throat> they were not scripted. It was an idea that came to us when we were shooting. Hired a couple people to react to the ship leaving. Clocking device is stable. All systems normal. Stabilize energy reserve. Report helm. Maintaining. This is a. You just did something interesting here, Leonard. Uh, by moving the camera. Mm -hmm. Interesting and uh, and it works. To get a sense of the ship. A sense rising. of the ship rising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He moves his camera, so that to go with that. Yeah. Start the camera high and just bring it down slowly, right. so you get the sense of the ship is going upward. Yeah. Scotty, are the whale tank secure? Aye, sir. But I've never been up 400 tons before. 400 tons. Well, it's not this just the whales. It's shot the of takeoff mm -hmm. matched with. The whales, any contact? Negative, sir. This shot. Yeah. Gives you a sense of the rising of the motion. Yeah. What's the problem? Your perception is correct, Doctor. In order to return us to the exact moment we left the 23rd century, I have used our journey back through time as a referent, calculating the coefficient of elapsed time in relation to the acceleration curve. Naturally. So what's your problem? Acceleration is no longer a constant. Well, then you're just going to have to take your best shot. Oh, here, here's the moment that I was thinking of where I missed a chance for the laugh. That guessing is not in my nature, Doctor. And he said, well, nobody's perfect, Spock. And I should have said, well, you're wrong about that. <laughs> I gave him, I, I, I lost the opportunity to put a button on this scene. <laughs> Anyway, let D have the final moment. That's it. That's it. Affirmative. Contact with the whales. Bearing. Bearing 327, range 600 nautical. Put it on screen. How can you do that? On screen. Closing in on the whales, bearing 328 degrees. Let's see it. This whole sequence was built around the idea of the, the Greenpeace activity of injecting themselves ship, between the whaling ships and the whaling whales. Ship, Are we too late? So as to protect the whale from the harpoon. Full power descent, Mr. Seward. Aye, sir. Full power descent. Now these are miniatures. These these are about three and a half or four feet long. They're radio controlled miniatures. And this is actual humpback footage. And so well done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The miniatures match the re real footage so well. Yeah. And to see them move in miniature, see those articulated uh, movements, uh, multiple uh, uh, motors going inside. Mm -hmm. 
They're in a tank, and the people operating them are looking at them through a window. Using using a standard joystick operating tool. Radio control, yeah. And the, the footage is slowed down so that you over crank the camera so you get more frame more frames per foot to slow down the motion, which gives which helps to add to the sense of weight and proportion. This is actually shot from the helicopter. We're in the helicopter approaching the ship. And this is miniature. This is actual footage. There's the clank. This shot, for example, was not budgeted. That, that close-up shot of th this shot was budgeted, but the previous shot of the close-up of the the nose of the Klingon ship was not budgeted. And I, I had to beg for the money. I said, I need a close-up of it, really looming close on these guys. All right, Scotty. What I enjoyed about uh, using the Klingon ship was the fact that there would be certain elements of it that we wouldn't quite understand. And there was a certain amount, a certain level of discomfort at times trying to figure it out. And, and particularly the character of the ship it was clunky, it was mechanical as opposed to sleek and futuristic. Uh, the angles. Um, ominous, and, Yeah, ominous, exactly. The way it was lit, the, the, the colors on the, on the graphics are, are uh, not necessarily pleasing. They're all, and the, the angles are all sharp angles. It was well designed. The bridge of the, uh, the Klingon ship in, the, in Star Trek III was very limited, very limited. It was a conversion from some other set that, that was standing. And we said, let's redress this, and it'll be the bridge of the, of the, the Bird of Prey. And it was very tight and very limited in scope. This was a whole new bridge we built here, and lavish by comparison. Aye, sir. Warp speed. Sulu, you have the car. I'm going to take our guest down and have a look at her whales. Well, Mr. Spock, have you accounted for the variable mass of whales and water in your time reentry program? Mr. Scott cannot give me exact figures, Admiral, so I will make a guess. A guess? You, Spock? That's extraordinary. I think he understands. No, Spock. He means that he feels safer about your guesses than most other people's facts. Then you're saying it is a compliment? It is. Ah. Then I will try to make the best guess I can. They say the sea is cold, but the sea contains the hottest blood of all. Whales weep not. D.H. Lawrence. You know, it's ironic. When man was killing these creatures, he was destroying his own future. The beasties seem happy to see you, Doctor. 
I hope you like our little aquarium. A miracle, Mr. Scott. A miracle? That's yet to come. The whales. They are blue screened in, yes. It means that our chances of getting home are not It gives them the, the, the largesse. Yeah. Otherwise, if, if they're close, if we're close to them in actual fact, you see them as three feet. Yeah. I suppose by some miracle you do get them through. Who in the 23rd century knows anything about humpback whales? You got a point. Admiral, I think you better get up there. We're having a power to fall off. Stay with me. On my way. Hold on tight, Lassie. Get bumpy from here. A lot depends on performance here. You see Bill come walking into the set here, sort of struggling to hold his footage with the thing shaking. The thing is not shaking. The camera's shaking. The set is perfectly solid and still. So he sells the idea that the whole that the whole bridge is shaking that way. By the way, he holds on to pieces of furniture as he comes down to get into his chair. He will escape the sun's gravity. I shall attempt to compensate by altering our trajectory. Book eight. Eight point one. My favorite memory of the first screening had to do with the uh, with the the question of whether or not to subtitle the whales. The studio people, some of them, were quite convinced that when this movie opened, the opening scene of the movie, that when you saw that probe coming towards the camera, sounding like whoop 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 whoop, whatever that sound was, they felt the audience would be confused unless we put subtitles on the screen. And the subtitles that were suggested were actually words like, where are you? Searching for the humpback whales in the ocean that are gone. And I said, no, 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 no. And they said, yes, 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 yes. And they said, well, we'll see what happens when we screen the movie. And you'll see. They said, the audience is going to say they don't understand what's going on. And I said, yes, they will. And I think I gave as an example 2001 Stanley Kubrick's movie, which was full of unanswered mysteries and which was awesome as a result, and 2010, which tried to explain all those mysteries, and it was a failure. Nobody cared to take all that mystery away. And I said, you take the mystery out of it and you're, you're defeating the whole purpose of the movie. Well, when they had the screening, the first screening, they actually asked the, the test audience this question. Did you understand what the, uh, what the uh, communication was between the probe and the whales? Absolutely. Did you need any translation? No, what for? You know. And they turned to me and said, oh, yeah, okay, I guess you're right. Yeah. And that was, that was a whole vindication of a whole major idea in this movie. It was about communication. The movie's about communication. And it's about the fact that not all communication is aimed at humans. That's the whole idea. So why translate it for the humans? You know? we, don't, we don't know exactly what these creatures are saying to each other, and we shouldn't know. That's the mystery. That's the wonderful mystery of nature. This is the right place, Spock. All we have to do is get the whales out of here before we sink. Abandon ship. Scotty, can you hear me? Well, this wasn't fun to shoot. This was in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah, it was not fun. It was not fun. I'll tell you one very interesting reason that we hadn't anticipated. The wind machines are blowing, the water machines are spraying, and the wind is blowing that, blowing that spray at right angles across the screen and hitting us like bullets. It hurt. 
the water, the pellets of water hitting us actually hurt. Yeah. It was not comfortable. And it was cold. And it was cold. The water was, was heated, the water in the tank was heated, but the wind whipping across the, t the water and blowing that uh, water at us made it feel cold and, and actually painful. It was not as much fun as it looked like. A lot of good acting going on. Yeah, we dig, dug a big, there, there had been uh, a tank many years earlier in that parking lot that had been used for underwater work. And it was rediscovered by our uh, production department. And after we'd been looking all around the city for, a, for a, sh a tank to shoot in, they discovered that there had been a tank right there on the Paramount lot, and, they, and we dug it up. Now this underwater stuff was really tricky for me. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you couldn't see, of course. Uh, it looks like I can see, but I can't see. Is it too murky? It's too murky, and you can't see underwater without goggles yeah. on anyways, why yeah. you wear goggles. Yeah. So I was swimming blind, and there's an overhead, it's overhead, it's, and I'm swimming in a tunnel, and there is some jeopardy here. Mm -hmm. And if I run out of air, uh, there's no telling what could happen. And so I struggled with it, and overcame my fear. And here I was, swimming around, trying to see which way to go. I had to swim by way of light. Uh, I was keying my, my way through lights underwater, and finally made it, and did it all. Smiled underwater, did everything I was supposed to do as an actor. to see an IMAX film of humpback whales. And in that IMAX film, I saw there were two whales in one shot, and one of them did this, turned vertical, and I thought, that's it. That's the magic of the, that I need to show the whale and the probe relating to each other. Hmm. One will go vertical, then the other will go vertical, and we'll understand that they're in communication. How wonderful. And that's where I discovered it. It was a very, very lucky break. We needed that magical moment of knowing that they, were, that they were in sync. And when I saw that piece of footage in the IMAX footage, I thought, that's it, that'll do the trick. ILM designed the probe. When it was first presented to me, it was just a simple, long, black cylinder. And then they came to me afterward and said, you probably will want to add this eyeball thing that comes down out of it to give you some more storytelling opportunities. So we added that. Eyeball to eyeball. Well, we, we understand they're in communication. We shouldn't know exactly what their language is or what their syntax is, what their vocabulary is. Shouldn't be translatable. <laughs> 
There never was, to my knowledge, any discussion about what the next movie would be. Nobody ever said at the end of one movie, well, the next movie. That conversation never was had. It was as though they would wait to see, they being the studio, mm -hmm. what kind of business the present movie would do before they would commit. And there'd be a year would go by before somebody would say, you know, we're thinking about doing another movie. Mm -hmm. Well, there are certain story points that have to be wrapped up and to sort of cash in on them. There's a court-martial sequence coming up where, where the, the, the crew is, the Kirk and the crew are, are all being court-martialed for having stolen the, uh, the Enterprise and taken it out and blown it up and, and, uh, and gone to a forbidden planet. And, uh, and then there's a resolution of Spock with his relationship with his mother and father. Um, the, the resolution of the Kirk uh, relationship with her, with the Catherine Hicks character. Uh, story points that have to be uh, resolved. But I think they all come together nicely. One of the most exciting aspects of developing this particular movie, at least on the page, and I think it played itself out successfully as well, was, the, was my, my awareness as the thing fell into place that we were following the classic Joseph Campbell story of the, the adventures of a hero. In this case, the hero, according to Joseph Campbell, through the ages, the stories of the hero have always been the same in different societies, different cultures, different time periods and so forth, the story is the same. The hero leaves home under troubled circumstances. These are Campbell's words. Leaves home under troubled circumstances. Goes out to engage in an adventure that has to do with his, his homeland's security being threatened. The engagement with that, with that problem results in either comedic or dramatic storytelling, depending on how you want to play the story. The conflict becomes either funny or, or dramatic and tragic. The hero succeeds in overcoming the problem comes back home, is successfully reintegrated into his society, and his society benefits as a result of his adventure. That's the classic story of the hero, according to Joseph Campbell. And this, this film story follows that pattern. So here you have the coming home and the reintegration of society. The, uh, the, the Federation president, in effect, says, uh, okay, we know you did some terrible things, but seeing as how you did some wonderful things, <laughs> you're... you're, you're uh, uh, you're going to become, instead of an admiral, you're going to be a captain, which I personally, Leonard Nimoy, always felt he should be a captain because I've always felt he was my captain, not my admiral, you know. I felt more comfortable with that. And, and, and the society benefits because they've, they've saved humanity, they've saved mankind, and they've saved the whales. So it's, it's a classic uh, Joseph Campbell construct. Just the, that very thing. About that being a captain? I never was comfortable with the admiral yeah. thing. And it was so beautifully calibrated to push me back in, uh, to being a captain as part of the plot. Captain has a sense of adventure and excitement about it. Admiral has a sort of a desk feeling to it, you know. Sabotage of the USS Excelsior. Willful destruction of Federation property. Specifically, the aforementioned USS Enterprise. And finally, disobeying direct orders of the Starfleet commander, Admiral Kirk. 
How do you plead? On behalf of all of us, Mr. President. Well, if they'll call us, we could go back and do a movie about uh, Spock's child. Spock's child, sure. <clears throat> Who is now, what, a uh, man of 50 or 60? Yeah, something like that, yeah. There's uh, several books out there that uh, I wrote uh, with Garen, Gar and Judy Reese Stevens um, involving the Star Trek family. And in it, I follow some of the passages that I've gone through, that Shatner has gone through, laid them on Captain Kirk, and had these wonderful adventures uh, with our, the family of characters that we have here. Um, giving, in my mind, a life to the original cast to go through these adventures, which is part of the aging process. I think the books work. As a result, I think films would have worked uh, with our cast and with the familiarity of these, of these characters, the richness of the delineation of these characters. Uh, the Spock, especially the Spock and Kirk character. Uh, uh, there's some mining to, be, to have been done. I don't know about Leonard, but we're not interested, I'm not interested in coming back as a subsidiary character in a you know, flesh out. Oh, in the show. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to me the major issue here is the fact that they've gone ahead with all of these other films with the other cast and all these series with other casts, plural. Uh, and the question is, where would they put us in the scheme of things? Where do we fit in their scheme of things? And I think their, their focus was all on moving ahead and doing these other stories with these other people. So although there may have been some rich opportunities for us to explore, I just don't think it was in the cards. You know, it was just uh, the nature of the beast. I got 300 years of catch-up learning to do. You mean this is goodbye? Why does it have to be goodbye? Well, like they say in your century, I don't even have your telephone number. <laughs> How will I find you? Don't worry. I'll find you. There's a wonderful moment here where she sort of kisses him off. She kisses him on the cheek and leaves. He's got this bemused look on his face like, how did I miss this one? <laughs> what happened here? Father, I'm returning to Vulcan within the hour. I would like to take my... And this is the payoff of that whole earlier scene where Spock is saying to his mother... I, I don't understand the question. I feel fine. Well, how do you feel when the, when the computer asks him, how do you feel? So this is the whole message back to the mother through the father who was not really aware of the whole story. So there's some charm to that. He says, your associates are people of good character. And he says, they are my friends. <laughs> well written. Your associates are people of good character. They are my friends. Yes, of course. Do you have a message for your mother? Yes. Tell her I feel fine. Live long and prosper, Father. Live long and prosper. I wish that uh, they had continued to make some movies with us. Yeah. We had Spock in a couple of... Um episodes of The Next Generation where he was now revealed to be a, uh, an ambassador uh, in, the, um, in the Romulan Empire. 
working undercover. And uh, for a while, for a moment in time, I thought maybe I would get a phone call and say, you know, we want to pick up that thread of the story. I never heard anything about it, and I didn't pursue it. The bureaucratic mentality. The studio changed. Not only did the directors, <laughs> if you go along what we, uh, as we were talking about earlier, that everything changes on episodic television except the actors, right up to the producers. Well, what we forgot to mention was, in addition to the producers changing, management of the studio changed. Mm -hmm. We've seen one, two, three, four Star Trek films uh, in uh, this um, uh, series of films. The next number is five, and uh, as a result of Leonard's um, bravery, courage, uh, imagination, uh, and becoming a director of, uh, of three and four Star Trek films, I get the opportunity to direct Star Trek V and I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. A gigantic achievement, gigantic. Let's see what she's got.